walk into. Hello, and welcome to Bright Lights, Big Data, a podcast about people, places, and data. I'm your data host, Tammy Armstrong. And I'm your planning host, Mike Armstrong. And we don't have an interview for you today. So we wanted to find a couple of new ongoing segments that we could do, and one of the ones that came to mind was jargon. Mm -hmm. We have strange terms in both of our fields, and they're terms that have been getting popularized, even though people don't really know what they mean or can't agree on what they mean, Mm -hmm. or their meaning is politicized. (laughs) So we thought that we would start to dig into some of these concepts and terms, define them the best way that we know how, and just have a little discussion about this. Yeah, and I'm going to start us off with that big date. Big data. (laughs) (laughs) Went for it. Uh, So big data, it's right in the name of our podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, I still don't know what it is. Right? Nobody does. No, it's it's kind of an interesting thing. When I was applying to analytics master's programs in about 2013, 2014, analytics and even more so big data were these kind of emerging buzzwords, but they weren't widely understood. And like we said, it's still not really widely understood, but it's kind of become this ubiquitous thing in some ways. And and there is actually a pretty specific definition for big data, and I want to dive into that. But first, I want to also talk a little bit about the history of it. So Gartner has something they call a hype cycle for emerging Ooh. technology. And it's, I mean, it's so much shade, right? They, they look at these emerging technologies and, and it's this curve that sort of starts out flat, rapidly increases, rapidly decreases and levels off somewhat higher than where it started off. So you're talking about my mini disc player. <laughs> Maybe, yes, perhaps. The idea behind this is sort of, you know, you've got something new and exciting exciting and they've got different names for it so they have like this peak of excitement i think that's what it's called when something's coming in and everyone's like oh we we all gotta invest millions of dollars in this emerging technology it's the future it's where everything's going to be and then once people have invested that money and they start to realize it's not as easy as they thought it was and then they go into something that i kid you not gartner calls the trough of disillusionment nice you know they're they're feeling like oh we spent all this money and it's it's not really giving us the returns we thought and then they kind of come back to reality a little bit and it it, it levels off to sort of just an ongoing area of of growth and usefulness and I forget what they call that segment of the the hype cycle but so big data was on that Gartner hype cycle for a while and recently it actually fell off altogether because they just decided it didn't really belong in a graph of emerging technologies because it wasn't emerging anymore and it's just kind of part of lots of things that we do. It's kind of embedded in other things on the hype cycle. So it's just so foundational to all these other things that it can't really be considered its own thing anymore. Sure. Which is kind of interesting. So when I was applying to those master's programs, people would ask me, like, what was analytics? And at the time, my answer was something like using statistics and computer programming to inform business decisions, especially with big data, uh, which is data too large to fit on a single computer. That was, like, my <laughs> my go-to. And there's still some truth to that. I think that definition has actually held up pretty well considering I didn't really know what I was talking about preschool. It's a little bit better than the definition I've been using which is when we eat Cheerios our silverware set has the small spoons and the big spoons Uh and so we had data (laughs) not big data (laughs) 
over to Bing's phone oh, where you no. can get more data. Oh, no, honey. <laughs> and process more data with your mouth. I mean, now throw that spoon into the sky, and now it's cloud big data. <laughs> right? Yeah, it all works. It's yeah. totally... Totally great, honey. Uh, so, <laughs> well, now you're going to learn once and for all what this really is. Yes. So, so I think, you know, my, my definition of analytics has generally held up pretty well, but I would actually de-emphasize the big data part because they're not mutually inclusive to each other, big data and analytics. I mostly used that definition because I knew people would be more likely to have heard of big data than analytics at the time. And they'd go, oh, yeah, 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 big data. Everybody's talking about that. I still don't know what that is, but I'd get more head nods and we'd move on. Uh, but the real definition of big data is actually a pretty high bar, and you can do analytics without ever really using big data when we think about the full definition of it. So there's kind of three V's that go into big data, and they are volume, velocity, and variety. So volume, that one's straightforward. We're starting to get into not just terabytes of data, but petabytes and exabytes and whole prefixes that you've never heard of before. Cloud storage, there's need for special tools and techniques to analyze big data uh, without taking years. And this is kind of special because statistics traditionally focused on inferring information about a population from a small sample. You know, data was hard to get. And how did we figure out without having to spend a lot of time collecting data, information about these large groups. So now we're kind of almost in the opposite where we're saying we have so much data, how do we get it? just the piece we want to know about? Right. Um, the second piece, like I said, was velocity. And that's where we start getting into the speed that that volume increases. So we've got the internet of things, which is another piece of jargon that we could talk about. Um, but we're constantly collecting tons of data. You think about the time you spend on Amazon buying things. You can have your purchase history, what you clicked on or tapped on in the app, what coupons were offered to you and what action you took, what products and all the pieces of information that are behind that for millions and millions of things every day. And all of that is being captured. So the overall amount of data that we collect is increasing rapidly. And then variety. There's lots of variables and there's different formats. So there's you know, very structured data like financial information, what's in your bank account, and then there's unstructured data, tweets on Twitter. It's just text that's kind of out there, and, and how do you get stuff from that? So big data really has a pretty high bar. You know, it, it needs to meet those three things. So if you're a company using big data, it doesn't just mean you have a lot of data and, you know, a million rows, a million observations. That's just not big data. You can deal with that in an Excel spreadsheet. This is where you really probably need specialty tools, things like Hadoop, which is that little yellow elephant. Yeah. Um, and it is actually just named after, I think, the creator's child's stuffed elephant toy. Yeah. Hadoop. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, honey. But the the thing I want to get at is that it's not technically synonymous with analytics. It does have a pretty specific meaning, and it is a big part of what a lot of people are doing in their day-to-day, -day, but not everybody who does analytics is actually ever even touching big data. A side note, there is a band named Big Data. Ooh. It wasn't until I was researching for this episode that I actually listened to them for the first time. They're actually pretty good. All right. Maybe we'll insert a little bit of a song here and take a listen. <laughs>
contributing to big data mm-hmm. is the idea of smart cities. Oh, like an internet of cities. Yes. No. <laughs> an internet of things within a city. Um, smart cities had a definition, and then people left that definition, right? <laughs> right. As they so often do. Um, so the original definition... Um, has a lot of language that I think will quickly become obsolete. Antiquated. In that it's a city that uses electronic sensors for data collection to supply info used in the manage of assets and resources efficiently. Mm-hmm. The better definition I've seen is more just like employing digital technology to improve municipal management, governance, long-range design and planning. So this is mostly focusing on information and communications technology, or ICT, apparently. Would you like lemon with that? I would. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So there were a couple of key points that go through this. One, it is about more advanced technology-based data collection. So sensors in a garbage can that tells the city when that garbage can is full. Is that garbage can named Push? <laughs> Brought to you by Disney. <laughs> Sorry, continue. I'm glad we are both uh, very helpful in the others. <laughs> it's so good. Clearly we understand each other's After work. 10 greatly. years of being together, we still don't really get each other's industries at this level. <laughs> so the other interesting thing to me about this is that it was largely born out of the most recent recession. Hmm. So the primary focus of all of the early smart city stuff, and still a lot of it, is on improving efficiency. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not about solving other problems. It is about cities had very limited budgets. Mm -hmm. How do they do things better within that budget? Yeah. So the other side of this is that it has typically been private sector driven. Mm-hmm. either working as consultants for cities or working kind of like Uber of dropping technology upon a city mm-hmm. and then making the case about what's happening there. So some examples are, you'll have to remind me, one of the airports that I used to fly into on the East Coast had the parking garage. Oh, BWI. Where, yep, where yep. at the entrance of every row there mm-hmm. is a X or a circle denoting if there is... A parking space available on that row. I freaking love that. And at some point, they updated to tell you the number of how many spaces are available mm-hmm. on each row. So it's a very basic example of they're using sensors, transmitting it so that um, people can make more efficient decisions rather than cruising up and down each aisle. They're like, "This is the one for me. I'm going down this one." There's GPS data that is tracked by all sorts of people. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's typically used in traffic management because they know where all of the smartphones on the roads are. Hmm. And so they can tell if there's a massive slowdown over here where congestion is, and they can try to make changes based on that. And so that'd be the same kind of stuff that Waze and Google Maps are using for traffic estimates. Yeah, so those are entirely on the private side of things, Mm -hmm. but they're starting to partner more with cities themselves. But it's, it's all that idea. Autonomous vehicles are the ones that get talked about a lot of an issue that people see in 
congestion. Mm -hmm. And there are companies that are trying to solve this with a technology improvement that will make the roads more efficient. Sure. That's the thought. It can be other things, too. I mean, um, when we did the water trails plan, we hosted some public meetings Mm -hmm. uh, where we provided alternatives, here are values, here are goals, and people could do live polling. That's a very simple example of it, but it's something that we didn't have for a long time. So from very small changes to these massive citywide new grids of technology that are constantly funneling in data that we don't always know what to do with is a big part of smart cities. The last example, and I think this is going to be a topic for a future episode, but Sidewalk Labs is a subsidiary of Google. They embarked on creating the smart neighborhood in Toronto. Okay. And they had access to pretty much everything. They could make just massively diverse changes and improvements or Mm -hmm. um, what have you in this neighborhood. So every garbage can is hooked up to the Internet of Things. They have prefabricated buildings that they use, sensor-enabled pavements and sidewalks that sense, you know, how much snow is on there. And they have the equipment to just melt the snow (laughs) with just the technology there. You don't Mm -hmm. have to shovel it. They can sense traffic loads, how many cars are on there, the weights and stresses put upon it. There is sort of this digital layer to the entire space. Mm -hmm. And this has not gone well. (laughs) Okay. And it's one of those where... A common criticism of smart city is that they mistake smart for technological advancement. Right. So these are decisions that are being made or perceived to be made without any sort of context in the people there, the people involved. That yeah. There's very little transparency. It's like, let's just make everything Bluetooth enabled. <laughs> For the sake of doing it. Right. And sometimes not having any sort of understanding of the context. So one that I would argue is around autonomous vehicles, specifically autonomous cars, I suppose. It is not a technology problem. It is a geometric problem. There is not enough space for this many cars. Mm -hmm. Whether or not there is somebody driving it does not change that. You'll increase some efficiencies because... Maybe they can drive closer together and they're less Mm -hmm. likely to have crashes, which would mean the roads are open more. But at the end of the day, it's just the number of vehicles out there taking up this much space. Unless you're basically making them little pods that can hold just the number of people that they need to hold. Like a bike. (laughs) You got me. Um... So overall, that's smart cities. That definition has been rapidly expanding kind of the way that big data is, mm-hmm. um, is that people who are not part of that original definition come across this term and use it in a slightly different way, and then it becomes <laughs> more yeah. vague, where now smart cities is just doing anything that includes data in decision-making at a city level. I don't think that's accurate, but it's evolving. Second item. Second item. So my second term is also a very commonly used one, but little understood, which is machine learning. 
So this is one that I kind of hear out at conferences, less technical people talking about like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll use machine learning for X, Y, and Z. And it, it sort of uses this panacea. And it is actually a pretty broad term, but it just kind of goes back to that algorithm discussion of like our very first episode of what is it? What does it mean? And when it's so broad, it can be used in two extremes, right? One is to seem really scary. What is this? And it's it's all going to be used to hurt me or take advantage of me. And then the other direction would be that it's magical and it can do anything and everything. And that's just not the case in either of those situations. So machine learning, according to Wikipedia, and I hate to do this, it's the like the... It's like that, that student that starts their speech with like, what is justice? Well, Webster's Dictionary. <laughs> Webster's obsolete. We're, we're in a new age. Yeah, Wikipedia says, but it is a subset of artificial intelligence. So mm-hmm. yet another popular term, not well understood, but in the sort of taxonomy of computer science, that's sort of where it falls. And generally speaking, machine learning is having a computer complete a task without being told how to complete that task. So I could tell you a person to make scrambled eggs and I could show you what scrambled eggs look like and then I could be like, go nuts, you got the whole kitchen. <laughs> or... I could give you a recipe or I could show you exactly how. I mean, that's sort of the difference. So you, in the analogy here, in the kitchen, if, if I haven't told you how to make scrambled eggs and you say, let's say you'd never done it before, you might go through the whole kitchen and just try all the ingredients. You're like, raspberry jelly, is this it? I don't know, let's try, you know? And then maybe you do get to eggs, but you you fry them instead or you hard boil them or something. You, you just, you have no idea what the right technique is until you produce something that actually looks like the scrambled eggs. And then you try that a couple more times, make sure it's right. And then you figured it out. That would kind of, it's it's sort of trial and error in, in a way. In more practical terms, a business objective might be something like maximizing revenue. We're not going to tell you how. Do you lower your prices? Do you create a new product? Who knows? More scientifically, sometimes people will come up with things like answering questions on a geography quiz. They're given the quiz and then here's all this knowledge, go nuts, you have access to everything. Or maybe can you come up with categories for a bunch of songs? Can you define genres for these things? Within there, there are two major branches of machine learning, which I've talked about before in previous episodes, and those are supervised learning and unsupervised learning. So with supervised learning, it's back to that scrambled eggs example. I've told you what scrambled eggs look like. I've given you a target. You know if you've got it right or not because you have an example of what I'm looking for. With unsupervised learning, I might say, make me something yummy. (laughs) And you don't really know what that is. You just make a bunch of stuff, and then I come in and say, yeah, I agree with that or not. Let's try again. And so in a business context, again, supervised learning might be, here's a bunch of examples of ways we've uh, had revenue in the past. Now you can figure out what things tended to increase or decrease that. And in unsupervised learning, that would be coming up with categories for a bunch of songs without telling it what genres have been applied by experts. So machine learning is not only for super advanced, computationally intensive, difficult to explain techniques like neural networks. Those are almost impossible for a human to really understand what's going on in terms of what moves things up and down. I mentioned this because I've presented machine learning work at 
a conference in the past, and I didn't call it machine learning. I was just like, I ran a decision tree. It's one of the simpler algorithms that you can do. And somebody in the audience asked me at the end, so like, so did you um, did you consider trying any machine learning techniques? And I was like, bro, this is machine learning. <laughs> Even amongst practitioners, you know, that was a technical conference. It's generally thought of as being this really high barrier kind of thing, and it, it kind of isn't. It's it's just kind of working through algorithms. But again, machine learning is not a cure-all. Just throw an algorithm at a problem and see what sticks. We do need to define the problem space. And we've talked about this in the past on a couple episodes, including the year-end episode is actually a good example of this with the run, run, Rudolph, run, run, Rudolph, run, run, Rudolph, the newborn king that was created by a kind of machine learning. So when we don't tell the machine how to do the task, we need to be really careful when we tell it what it means for the task to be done. And that's why we need to test and test and test because otherwise you can end up with really unexpected results. There's sort of the dystopian example of like, we need to maximize the amount of oxygen on the spaceship. And so you do that by killing all the astronauts so that they don't breathe the oxygen. (laughs) I don't know if that's actually happened in, in a run before, but versus just like an episode of Doctor Who. But there are ones with, back to the geography quiz example, I've heard people talk about doing this and then their machines end up deleting the answer key. And and the way that they were testing for whether or not the questions were answered correctly, they were comparing to the answer key. And if there was a null comparison, it, it showed as a correct answer. So there are lots of examples of that kind of stuff where one computer needs to beat another computer at chess. And so the one computer basically does a bunch of weird computational things to overclock the other computer and make it shut down so it can't respond to moves anymore or starts doing it poorly, like straight up Nancy Kerriganing <laughs> their opponents. A more pleasant example, uh, Kobayashi Maru. <laughs> yes, that's great. They, they inserted a bug into <laughs> the program. So this kind of goes back to our episode on smart goals. Uh, We talked about smart cities. It's a little bit different, but your accuracy and success measures really matter when you're doing these things so that you can not just tell it to do a task and go, oh, it did it. You need to double check and, and make sure you understand what's important to you so you can make sure that the machine is achieving it in a way that you are okay with. <laughs> that's so, machine learning. So that's how we're all going to die. Yep. It's learning. <laughs> we're on a knife's edge, people. Yep. No, it's fine. What you got? All right, so... A little nervous about this one? A little bit. So the last one that I have is equity. This is a term that is bandied about a lot. It's what I was thinking of when I think of language that has also been politicized. Mm -hmm. And it's also just a very difficult definition in general Mm -hmm. because of equity. I'll get (laughs) into that. Sort of some meta issues going on here. Yeah. So equity, when I was looking through for different definitions, I most often see it in planning and also public health, though it's you know, across any number of fields and they have different definitions and there's not agreement within the fields themselves. Um, So some of the pieces that I found is that equity is full and equal access to opportunities, power, and resources. It is the absence of systemic and pattern disparities between groups of people. Mm, Um, I like that. I kind of like that too, although defining anything by a negative is a yeah, little tough, but that yeah. one makes more sense to me mm-hmm. that whether it is economic, racial, ethnic, religious, 
identity bases for having these different outcomes for different groups, having disparate outcomes for these different groups in a way that is systemic and patterned. So there are probably some situations where it can be kind of random chance. You know, if you look at outcomes for being struck by lightning. (laughs) But most of the things that we talk about in health and planning in a lot of these social fields is about sort of institutionalized decision making, Mm -hmm. historical context that have created these conditions that are patterned, that are consistent. I think Like if you set up a bunch of projects, housing near a super congested highway, what are you doing to the air quality of the people who don't have a lot of choices but to live there? The one I found in health is Margaret Whitehead. Uh, She wrote an article called The Concepts and Principles of Equity in Health that is used as kind of a landmark, has been well-received, well-reviewed. And she saw it again as that negative, defined health inequities as differences in health that are unnecessary, avoidable, unfair, and unjust. Um, And I think that's important that it's not only that something is fair, it also needs to be just. Mm -hmm. You know, it needs to be in light of that longer run of history and conditions. So Paula Dressel, a quote I saw from her is that, the route to achieving equity will not be accomplished through treating everyone equally. Mm Mm-hmm because we are starting from different points. Um, And those points are based in historic decisions and systemic issues. Some of this is charged language as well. We're a nation of equality. Mm -hmm. Like that, that's part of our sort of core language. Identity. Um, But if you pick sort of a snapshot in time and say, here is the distribution of power and resources. And now we're going to start treating everyone equally from that point on. Some people could argue that that is fair, but you can't really argue that that is just. Right. So that's a big point there. <laughs> so It's kind of like two kids playing ping pong or something. And the one waiting until they're up by like 10 points before they say, okay, one more point, and yep. then we're done. <laughs> right? It, it is kind of that feeling. So I wanted to talk about two different examples. So the first one is that a lot of people support laws that say that you cannot ride a bicycle on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. From the data side of things in many urban environments, it is typically safer to ride your bike in the road than on the sidewalk or Mm -hmm. in the street than on the sidewalk. And that is because it is much harder to see somebody riding on the sidewalk. So anytime there's an intersection or a driveway, it is much less expected. Most crashes are from these sort of turning conflicts mm-hmm. instead of somebody driving up from directly behind you and hitting you. Right. That's sort of the, I don't know what you want to call it, like straightforward common sense mm-hmm. kind of thing. But the process for deciding this did not include a lot of people. It was largely made by the planning department and the um, elected officials who are predominantly of a certain economic and racial makeup. Mm. And so this law was rolled out, and the outcome of it was that um, this was used as a measure for stopping, ticketing, and harassing primarily Latino men. Hmm. Sorry, is this an specific area that we're talking about or is this sort of widespread it's happened in a lot of different 
places, the most well-documented one was in Tampa. So again, when you think about equality, you think about this law applies to everyone, Mm -hmm. that it doesn't talk about any of these other pieces because it assumes equality. But the historical context, the process of making that decision, the power structures and systemic inequities that exist create a very different outcome where it is disproportionately affecting a certain group in a way that was outside of their control and prevents them access to opportunity, resources, and power. Yeah. A more straightforward one that is more enjoyable to talk about, there were a number of articles three or four years ago, I think 2015 is when I saw this the most, Finland has income-adjusted fines where they calculate fines that starts with an estimate of the amount of spending a Finn has for one day and then divides that by two, um, and the resulting number is considered a reasonable amount of spending money to deprive from the offender. (laughs) And then there's some additions of, based on the severity of the crime, they'll determine how many days the offender must go without that money. So I think if you were going 15 miles per hour over, it was 12 days. (laughs) So they would take that specific person's, an estimate of their spending money for a day, Mm -hmm. take half of that and then multiply it by 12, and that Mm -hmm. would be their fine. Yeah. What this can mean is that a few people were receiving speeding tickets of $50,000. And that seems insane. Right. Right? Like... But some people were were, maybe also getting $12. They were going, you know, 10, 15, I don't remember what it was, Mm -hmm. over the speed limit, and they were fined $50,000 for that. And it's hard to swallow that on the surface. But at the same time, a $50 ticket impacts different income levels so much differently. And this person who received a $50,000 ticket had a declared annual income of 6.5 million euros. Wow. A $300 ticket means absolutely nothing for that person. It has no impact on them. It will not change any sort of behaviors, uh, discourage them from breaking the law again in the future. So this is kind of how they set that up. And that's so Mm -hmm. interesting to me, and again, is that idea of equity instead of equality, that you have a purpose for the fine, but an equal fine for everyone does not achieve that purpose for everyone. Right. The component of this that I really like, um, I learned about when I went to a talk on gamification back when we lived in Portland. In Sweden, they also do this for their speeding tickets. And I think in a, in a limited number of areas, it might even just be one intersection, if you are going the speed limit, they clock your license plate at this overpass or something, and you get entered into a lottery to win the sort of pool or maybe some component, maybe you know half or something, of the fine money that's been paid in by all the rich people who speed. Yeah, so if you are not ticketed at any point throughout mm-hmm. the year, you are entered into the lottery. Yeah. Yeah. So... Equity is both process and product. I mean, it is about this mm-hmm. fine structure or about this policy that was enacted, but it's also about how they came to that decision, who was involved, who has any sort of influence and power mm-hmm. over that. And for me, at least, when I think about it in the simplest terms, it is about who is listened to and how, who suffers disproportionately and why, who benefits disproportionately and why, and who gets to 
influence the decisions made. So this is by no means the (laughs) one and only definition of equity. This is an incredibly complex Mm -hmm. issue that insanely smart people spend their entire PhD thesis trying to Mm -hmm. pin down. And it is one that is certainly very fraught because it talks about these systemic conditions and patterns that we also Mm-hmm. grew up in and are influenced by and so it's very difficult or impossible to step outside of that system and be able to see it for what it is and yeah. vocalize what it is and make decisions based on that mm-hmm. that's really interesting it was not a term that outside of maybe a financial sense when we talk about private equity and and things like that that i'd really heard about before and it sounds like like you said it's it's process and product understanding what it is is kind of a process as well. Mm-hmm. Well, that was great. I, I think I learned something. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully all of you learned something as well. I'm not sure if we'll do another jargon episode real soon, but if you thought of anything or if anything came up during either of our definitions here, uh, if there's anything else that you've come across, feel free to send it in to us and let us know if you have questions or, or things you'd like to learn more about. You can find us on Facebook, Bright Lights Big Data. You can find us on Twitter at BLBDpod. And you can email us at brightlightsbigdata at gmail.com. Stay tuned. We're going to try to set up some more interviews here in the near future. Um, we've met some really great people over the past weeks and months, uh, especially at the Latino Day on the Hill mm-hmm. last month. Um, so some people we want to follow up with there. And uh, yeah, if you like what you're hearing, please make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. This has been Bright Lights, Big Data. and We'll be talking again soon.